0: What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going
1: on? What the <laughs> hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on.
0: What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about?
1: Hi, I'm Danielle Plutka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, a lot of people are
0: asking that question right now, Danny. <laughs> and the, the best reason, name ever
1: for a podcast. And the
0: reason is, they're always asking that question, but particularly this week, because we got a 40-year high in inflation, the supply chain crisis, Omicron going crazy, school shutting down, all this stuff. And Joe Biden and the White House are focused on the hot, hot, hot button issue of electoral reform and what they called pushing back the assault on voting rights. There was a Politico morning consult poll that asked voters, what should Congress be focused on most? One, reforming the electoral college. Two, expanding voting access. Or three, expanding federal oversight over the states on voting. And the winner was none of the above, (laughs) which I think sums it up pretty much. This is not what the American people think the president should be focused on right now.
1: Right. So this is an elite normal people divide. Yes. Right? Normal people are freaked out correctly, I think, when they go to the Safeway or the giant, those are our stores, or Kroger or wherever it is you go, and you can't get milk. You can't get eggs.
0: No, I, swear, I swear, this is not an exaggeration. We were at the local Trader Joe's in our area, and the entire case where they have all the fresh foods and the vegetables and the meats and all that empty. It was like a Soviet grocery store.
1: And CVS is the same. And right. And for most Americans who don't remember (laughs) the glorious 70s, this is something we've really never seen before. So it is no surprise. Let me put it this way. I think we've gone through the litany of why the notion that there is an unprecedented assault on democracy only by Republicans is not true. You can go back and listen to our episode with Brian Kemp, governor of Georgia. But we've talked to a lot of people about this. We talked to Rui Teixeira, who is at the Center for American Progress, certainly no Republican, who also actually had a great piece. We'll link it talking about why these are not real issues right now. But even if you think this is a pressing issue, the fact that people can't find the bread and the milk and the eggs to put on their table and secondarily when they find them can't afford them? is really a big issue. People have lost real wages in the last year. I thought the Democratic Party was the party of the people, but it really, it isn't. And on top of that,
0: not only are they focused on the wrong thing, but they're doing it
1: in such a hyperbolic and offensive way. Tell people who weren't paying as close attention as we do about Biden's inaugural 2020, I'm going to start the year off on a new foot speech that he gave last week in Georgia. So
0: Biden literally goes to Georgia and he compares people who oppose this electoral reform to George Wallace, Bull Connor, the Alabama police chief who was using fire hoses and dogs to attack civil rights protesters, to Jefferson Davis, the leader of the Confederacy. So basically, if you oppose me, you're in league with racists and traitors. Not only that, he explicitly called them enemies of America. He said, I will defend the right to vote our democracy against all enemies, foreign and yes, domestic. Everyone in the media, who their heads exploded when Donald Trump said the media is the enemy of the people, which I criticized at the time, it was ridiculous to say that half of the American public who didn't vote with him and who doesn't support his election reforms are enemies, domestic enemies of Not the United Not even of deplorable. Not even deplorable. Enemies and traitors. Enemies and traitors, and racists and segregationists. And what we found fascinating was that while, yes, the Republicans are opposed to this bill, Mitch McConnell isn't killing this bill. Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are killing this bill. Are they segregationists and racists and traitors to the United States of America? How does those words come out of the president's mouth? I ran the White House speechwriting shop. And one of the things that people don't realize is that this wasn't like a word salad that he normally delivers off impromptu, <laughs> right? These were actually carefully chosen, written words in a prepared remark. A presidential speech when it's prepared remarks goes through what's called the White House staffing process, which means it has to go to all of the senior staff in the White House and they have to review it and edit it. It goes to the cabinet secretaries. In a case like a speech about voting, it would go to the attorney general who would personally review it. Did no one go to the president and say, are you sure you want to say that? Either no one did that, in which case it is the consensus of the Democratic establishment embodied in the Biden White House that this is one acceptable rhetoric and also true, or somebody did raise this, and there's a record of it by the way, because you have to send in written comments on the speeches, and they said, Yeah, that's okay. We thought about your objections and no, we're comfortable calling all these people racists and segregationists and
1: Confederates. So what I liked last week in your piece when you wrote about this, and again let's not talk so much about politics. Let's just talk about process. Let's talk about being in touch with the reality of a diversity of opinions within your own party. And then what you said said to me was, you know, well, it was as if in 2007, when everything was going to hell in a handbasket in Iraq, if George W. Bush had sort of said, let's... Double down! The analogy I gave you was it is as if the White House turned to George W. Bush as things were going terribly in Iraq and the American people were losing all confidence in their commander in chief and said, You know what? Now is the right time to invade Iran. I mean, that is what Biden did. And to say that his speech landed with a clunk is perhaps a little bit too generous to him. The headlines were absolutely devastating. But I think this is part of the problem that we're seeing, which is that there is this elite school zone in Washington and in New York and in San Francisco that has obsessed the leadership of the Democratic Party. And Normal people, if they're not worried about inflation, are worried about a crime rate unseen in decades. So let me let
0: me give you some statistics on what is the lived reality of the American people as they're listening to these words, right? Okay. Inflation reached a 40-year high, and we have a labor shortage with 10 million unfilled jobs in this country. Biden signed a 1.9 trillion Democrats-only COVID relief bill in March, yet Omnicon arrives and we have a shortage of tests and treatments. Schools are closing again. As we pointed out the other day on the podcast, number of emergency room visits by adolescent girls is up 51%. That's for mental health. For mental health. Emergency room visits for suspected suicide attempts, sorry. The country's experienced the worst crime wave in years. Twelve major cities broke their annual homicide records in 2021. We're experiencing the worst border crisis in U.S. history, and there's a surge of fentanyl coming across the border, which means we have had a doubling of overdose deaths in the country. And in the wake of the extraordinary success of his Afghan withdrawal, which everyone in the country knows was a debacle, Vladimir Putin is massing troops on the border of Ukraine. And we could very well in the next few weeks have a major land war in Europe. And then Biden promised to unite the country, and he just compared his opponents to segregationists. I mean, the number of things that is happening in this country that people are concerned about, this is not only the bottom of most people's lists, but also to do it in such a way that just is a slap in the face of the reason why people elected him, to unite the country. It's remarkable. Well.
1: I would just point out, Mark, that you also left out what's going on with China for the, yeah, first, sure. for the first time. For the first time, while we have the Olympics starting in a country that's running. To the knowledge of the world, concentration camps. We also had the first time that Xi Jinping, the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, in his big New Year's address, which is often a big signal to his plans, mentioned the importance of reunifying Taiwan with the Chinese mainland. Yeah. So yeah, things are going great, Joe. I think we should definitely, definitely talk about what a pig and a racist Kirsten Cinema is. Yeah. Right. That's good plan. So we wanted to get to the bottom of this, try and understand a little bit more about some of the politics behind why Joe Biden is making what I think most of us believe are some pretty serious mistakes. Even though both Mark and I are not big Biden supporters, I think we all want the president of the United States, no matter who he is, to be uh, a huge success. This is <laughs> this is just a flaming dumpster fire of a presidency and uh, rivaling Donald Trump for low approval ratings, which is...
0: Exceeding. S- ...stunning. Exceeding.
1: So, so how
0: what did... The 33% approval. 33. Oh, Mark, that's an
1: outlier, please. Yeah. Please, don't you okay, listen so, to Jen uh, yeah, Psaki? I'm sorry.
0: The, so, again, stats. He started the presidency, 55.5% approval. He's now down on the real clear politics average to 41.7%. is the fastest collapse in presidential approval in modern history.
1: Right. And those are both Republican and Democrat polls and the RCP average. So we're not even talking about sort of a solid impartial number there. I suspect his numbers are a lot worse. But we wanted to talk a little bit about what the hell is going on, why this is happening, why there seems to be this unbelievable disconnect between what Mark sort of called in Meghan Markle-like form, America's lived reality, and... (laughs) <laughs> and and the Oracle. I know that was pretty <laughs> cold. Sorry, and the apparently lived unreality of 1600 uh, Pennsylvania Avenue and its denizens. So we invited Josh Kraushaar of the National Journal. He's their senior national political columnist. He writes their weekly column there. He's been around D.C. forever and is I think a very well regarded and really sound political analyst. He was the managing editor for politics at National Journal, and he was the executive editor and editor in chief of the Hotline we're lucky to get him.
0: Here's our interview. Josh, welcome to the podcast.
2: Hey, great to be on with you guys.
0: So, opening question, what the hell was going on with that speech in Georgia that Joe Biden gave?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're asking the question that everyone in Washington is asking, that with an opportunity to start the new year right on a better political foot, with the knowledge that there are Democrats in his own caucus in the Senate caucus who were not going to support changing the filibuster rules to do what Biden wanted to do on voting rules. And given that the public, Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike are concerned about the economy. They're concerned about what's going on with Omicron. They're concerned about violent crime that's rising across the nation's cities. The notion to pick voting access, voting rules as the seminal issue to start the new year is a real head-scratcher. It's dividing not just uh, the White House, but the Democratic Party. There are moderates in the Democratic caucus that didn't want to have to vote on the filibuster as one of their first actions in the new year. And uh, it just doesn't suggest that this administration has learned the lessons from the last year.
1: So, not to be too much of an inside the Beltway nerd, but Mark had a great piece in his Washington Post column last week, and he asked the question, how does this actually happen? Mechanically speaking, you just said they're sort of divided minds in the White House. Okay, maybe that's true, but... How actually did this happen, in your view? Because this was just so obviously a misstep (laughs) that it's amazing that it got past the usual sort of interagency, intra-White House process?
2: Well, look, from my conversations with folks at the White House or connected to the White House, there's a consistent pattern that I've heard over the last year, really, which is that the progressive voices have the upper hand in the Biden administration. The chief of staff, Ron Klain, is sort of the quarterback or the head coach, perhaps. You know, and he's put up a lot of losses. When you're a head coach and you have that many L's to your record, you're usually on the hot seat. But he, he's sort of driving the car, and he's done it and kind of sided with the progressives in the party, and then there are a lot of other folks at the top levels of this White House that are sympathetic to the progressive point of view on a whole range of issues, economic, social, foreign policy. And sometimes when you're in a bubble, and the White House can be a very insular bubble at times, you're not hearing the diversity of views. You're not hearing that skeptical voice that says, the public isn't supporting what we're doing. We're losing political capital. Maybe you should rethink the strategy of trying to force something through and running against a wall when they're actually some quiet voices that make up a big, big chunk of the party that are growing concerned about this strategy. And look, I think that's the biggest challenge this White House faces in its second year is getting out of that bubble of challenging this progressive conventional wisdom that has led the White House in a very rough place politically of not indulging the Pramila Jayapal, the progressive leaders in the House, the squad, and actually challenging them and setting an agenda that's more in line with the swing districts, swing state members that are actually going to have a tough race on the ballot in this midterm election year. So there are a lot of Reasons, I think. I think the biggest, frankly, the biggest reason is that. There's a bubble, and it's a progressive bubble that has left them blinded to the political realities of the day. But there also are more pragmatic voices in this administration. There's certainly more pragmatic voices on the outside that have been giving this administration advice, and you would hope that they would listen to some of those voices in the coming year.
1: Okay. So Mark and I just had a little hand-slapping fight because I want to ask you a quick follow-up question. (laughs) You said Ron Klain is the quarterback on this. Now Mark is gesturing to Jackson that we need to cut this question. (laughs) I so mean. But I thought actually, Joe.
0: Next time I'm going to actually slap you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here on the record first, people. Mark, you're going to jail. All right. No, seriously, Josh. Just a, really a quick follow up. So, yeah, okay. I get it. Ron Klein is the progressive quarterback and he's losing. But wasn't Joe Biden meant to be the moderate voice in this administration? Is he president?
2: It's <laughs> a good question. Look. the funny thing the question i've asked since the beginning of this administration is how does a president who ran to the middle in the primaries get further and further to the left as the time goes on, right? I mean, Politics 101, in the 15 or so years I've been covering politics, usually candidates who run in the primaries pander to the base, and then then they move gradually to the middle as they face the general election voters. And then, you know, and usually they govern towards the middle, and, and, you know, at the very least they adjust to where the politics are at any specific moment. Biden has done the exact opposite. (laughs) He was the most moderate candidate in a field of progressives and won decisively, and has only moved leftward as time goes on, even when the public has rejected his progressive moves. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think you're right. I mean, look, I think it's not a secret that at 79 years old, Biden isn't as vibrant and isn't as outspoken, perhaps, as he was when he was vice president or in the Senate. And the staff may have more influence than they would have in a different time for Biden. But Ultimately, the buck does stop with the president to borrow the line from Harry S. Truman. And there hasn't been a lot of (laughs) buck-stopping. There hasn't been a lot of foot stomping and setting the tone of his own administration. I, I also think that there's been a lot of reporting to this effect that once the Democrats won those two Senate seats in Georgia in January of the last year, the notion that Biden could be this transformative, historical president, against all political reality... But still, they weren't expecting to win those Georgia seats. They weren't expecting Democrats weren't to having the Senate majority. And expectations got out of whack. And, you know, I think that moment led Biden to think he could do things that still were not that politically realistic. And I think that may have led to some of the strategic missteps that took place in the administration's first year. He
0: was not elected to be a transformative president. He was elected to unite the country. How do you, I mean, there's the failure of priorities here. Like, I think there was a political morning consult poll that asked, uh, what should Congress focus on? Reform the Electoral College, expand voting access, or expand federal oversight? And the winner was none of the above, right? This is not (laughs) what Americans are focused on. But then how does the president, who literally a year ago this week said that he would put his whole soul into uniting the country, start the year by comparing not just Republicans, but Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to Bull Connor, Jefferson Davis and George Wallace. Even rhetorically, he's not
2: even trying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a good rule of politics is when you make a promise, like live up to that campaign pledge. You know George H. W. Bush. One of his big mistakes was pledging not to raise taxes and undermine that promise. Broke it. That was the end of his presidency. (laughs) Biden promised a return to normalcy. Right? He was the anti-Trump. He was going to be a more competent credible, and compassionate president, all those three Cs. That was the defining hallmarks of what he promised in his inaugural speech. They failed, or or at least struggled, on all of those fronts, whether it's Afghanistan, the withdrawal that was chaotic and and just a real disservice to all three of those factors, the overstimulation of the economy with the $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, the struggles with COVID in the Omicron phase. We now are dealing with the threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. On all those issues, there's questions about this administration's competence, credibility, and even compassion on some of those fronts. And like you said, Mark, he's not even focused on those issues. He's seemingly focused and distracted by issues that are only cared about by a narrow faction of his own base. And again, I don't understand the political thinking behind it, but I think the fundamental flaw is that he was elected based on being the normal guy, <laughs> not just the moderate guy, but the guy who would reverse the mismanagement, the chaos. Uh, Wouldn't the say crazy some... shit like that.
1: <laughs> right. right. That's the best do summary. All
2: is, is check some easy boxes that they got a little too ambitious and they tried to go big and, and it's really come back to bite them.
0: I want to drill down to why they're doing this because they're starting the year, fighting a fight that they know they are going to lose because Manchin and cinema are not moving, right? So it has no chance of success. So they're setting themselves up for defeat. They obviously want the defeat because they want to use it in some way. I mean, is it because they're concerned about Republican inroads with the black vote? Because Barack Obama won 95 percent of black men, Joe Biden won 80 percent, Trump won 18 percent of black men in the last election. Pre-election polls showed that younger black voters age 18 to 44 increased their support for Trump. He expanded his success with non-white voters generally. I mean, I know they're small numbers, but they need super majorities of that vote in order to prevail. Are they concerned about that and trying to paint the Republicans as racist so that they can energize black voters in the midterms in the presidential?
2: Yeah, I mean, perhaps. Often you go to your base when you're in your worst position politically, when you're at your lowest point. And if you look at the latest round of public polls, Biden is not just losing support from independents, Republicans, certainly, but he's also losing ground with his own base. So, yeah, I mean, you saw this in the Virginia governor's race that Terry McAuliffe, he did the whole Youngkin is Trump, Hail Mary pass because he was losing. Racist dog whistles over every interview in the last week, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. And as a political analyst, that's a clear sign that you're both losing, but you may need to do that to get your base back, to make sure that you at least have the base going into a midterm election. Now, I think this is problematic, though, because he's trying to get his base back, if you think about it in the most sympathetic terms for what the White House is trying to do. But at that Atlanta event last Tuesday, Stacey Abrams didn't show up, You've got to get your base on board. And also a lot of the prominent civil rights leaders in the state of Georgia also were so sick of making these grand promises and not living up to them that they didn't show up either. So it only exacerbated problems with his base while not doing anything to help with the bigger problem, which is losing independence, losing moderates in the middle.
1: I still don't understand why Stacey Abrams didn't show up.
2: I mean, I think the easiest explanation is Joe Biden is not popular <laughs> in the state of Georgia. She's running for governor. It's weird that there's some people who kind of still view her as sort of a center-left pragmatist, which is not my read of of how people (laughs) view Stacey Abrams. But that view is, you know, she actually did pretty well in the suburbs of Atlanta. She actually is able to build a broader coalition than a lot of other Democrats. And her numbers are actually, they are better than Biden's in Georgia from the numbers I've seen. So I think the simplest reason is that she just didn't want to be tainted by Biden's baggage. <laughs> you know, I got
1: to say, I mean, if you had told me that any political analyst would utter the phrase, didn't want to be tainted by Biden, I would have thought you were spoken something. <laughs> but where does this all lead? So, okay, we've seen this happen. We've lifted our jaws off of the ground and put them in the correct part of our face again. But it does beg the question, What do the next 11 months look like? Is there going to be a course correction? We're looking not simply at a rising murder rate. I saw the New York Times has finally noticed it this morning. We're looking at inflation. As we're recording this, the stock market's down almost 600 points. We're looking at COVID going on. We're looking at a serious litany of problems in which people are really, really hurting at home and blaming the president, who seems to want to focus more on Georgia than he does on on the fact that you really hard to buy milk at the grocery store at this point. Where does this lead?
2: The bad news for the White House is that there's only a limited set of tools he has to contain inflation in the run up to the midterms and to raise the confidence that we're getting out of the pandemic. That a lot of that is out of his control. I think the biggest mistake that Biden made Well, one of the biggest mistakes, at least, was going full partisan in his first big legislative push to get that $1.9 trillion emergency COVID spending through. He could have done half of that and gotten some Republicans on board and to quote Biden's own campaign message, he could have built back better. He could have started small, built some goodwill, and then actually maybe got some bipartisan accomplishments done from that. Instead, talked to Larry Summers, talked to a lot of prominent economists. They're now acknowledging that that overstimulation, that infusion into the economy, probably worsened our inflation situation. He can't get out of that now. He's kind of stuck with the economy that he kind of helped perpetuate. I think on the, on the COVID front, what he could be doing is talking, you know, he, he could be doing what Trump didn't do. Like when Trump had those daily briefings in 2020 where he was front and center and not letting the Fauci's and the public health folks take center stage. I, I think the Biden administration could do a much better job with communicating, frankly, get our way out of the the pandemic, trying to allay the fears of a lot of folks, both with his base and across the country. You have this weird dynamic where a lot of the country has frankly gone back to normal even with Omicron across the country. But a lot of his base is afraid to, like, get out there and open schools and get back to normal, and we're nearing, you know, in a few weeks, we'll probably be burning out from this Omicron surge, and there's going to be a real need to reassure the American public that there's nothing to fear but fear itself, that you can start getting back to normal. You've got to get the economy back. You've got to start living your normal lives, and that's going to be healthy for his own administration and his administration's political future. So I think that's something, the communication and an optimistic communication on the state of the pandemic and how we're going to get out of this thing in the next month or two is something that's going to be really important for his administration to do. But we're saying this at a time when the CDC has been hammered on all fronts for just being as unclear and as muddled as possible in its messaging on the public health front. That could be something that they should focus on, just getting the public health communication right and, frankly, taking control of the communication from the executive side, not letting Fauci say one thing, Rochelle Walensky saying another thing, and having this sort of alarmist messaging all over the place without having some centralized guidance from the White House that's more reassuring. I mean,
0: honestly, I think Joe Manchin probably saved his bacon. Because if you think about that $1.9 trillion infusion in the economy that's unleashed inflation, supply chain crisis, labor shortages, and all the rest of it, what would $3.5 trillion do for him? I mean, honestly, the best thing that ever happened to Biden was having Joe Manchin kill that bill, don't you think?
2: Well, and how many times, Mark, did Manchin say, I can't support this level of spending because of inflation? And inflation kept getting worse and worse. And you remember the leading economists in the White House were saying until maybe a month or two ago that this is temporary. This is transitory. And Manchin is out there saying, no, no, we need to be concerned about how much spending we're putting into the economy. I worried he was. Manchin was right, politically and probably substantively as well. And why it took so long for the White House to hear and heed Joe Manchin's warnings, it beats me.
0: Have you ever seen a White House mismanage a member of their own caucus that they need more than Joe Manchin? I mean, they literally thought that he would just fold. They tried to play budget gimmicks with him and make the bill seem smaller when he was very clear that he was not going to support any more than $1.75 trillion and he wanted it focused on one or two things and they wouldn't scale back their list. Then they attack him afterwards and then Now, with, I mean, you know, people think that Biden's speech was focused on Republicans when they were comparing him to Bull Connor and George Wallace. But Mitch McConnell isn't killing this voting rights bill. It's Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Are they segregationists? I mean, watching from Joe Manchin's perspective, I can't imagine them doing a worse job of dealing with a senator who holds their fate in his hands.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's been a disaster in terms of expectations, in terms of just actually listening to what the senator has to say, given that he is the crucial vote that will determine what gets through (laughs) the Senate. Now, to be fair, some of this was a result of trying to both placate the progressives in the House while also making sure Manchin was satisfied. The political math to achieve that is difficult, right? Because the majority was very narrow. You have these squad members that are nihilists and and were willing to blow the infrastructure bill up. If they didn't get everything they wanted, they were basically willing to scuttle by Biden's agenda, the infrastructure bill, namely. But at the same time, it does seem like this White House has put more pressure, a bit more aggravated with Manchin and cinema than they are with AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, right? The better strategy, I think, would have been to lower expectations, not raise them to make the progressives so emboldened in the last year, and certainly not to pander to them as this White House and as Ron Klain and then others that this White House did throughout that whole legislative debacle. They literally gave many things the progressives wanted, raised their expectations, let them set the demands to the point where getting anything through the Senate, through Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, was always going to be very, very unrealistic.
1: So, again, we've got a tough year ahead. As you said, it's going to be hard Even if they made a sea change right now, it's gonna be very hard for them to right the ship. I feel like I'm gonna lose this metaphor somewhere soon. But we get to the midterms. Unless something truly unexpected happens, the Democrats lose control of the House they might, I don't know what you think, and I'd be interested to hear, lose control of the Senate. What does this mean? Does this mean that the left sort of gets a free pass to be even more detached from reality? Because when you're in the minority, that is one of the things you can really do is let the perfect be the enemy of the good. How do we play it forward?
2: So let's play out what would happen if Republicans have a really good night or just a good night, frankly, and and win back the House win 15 to 20 seats, which I think is a a conservative guess on where they are right now. That would mean that the folks who would lose on the Democratic side are the moderates, the pragmatists, the people who are actually the more reasonable folks who are in tougher districts. They're representing more competitive seats. And that would only empower the AOCs, the Pramila Jayapals, the progressive wing, even more in the minority. I hate to overstate the stakes here, but there's sort of a cycle of almost like a death cycle where Democrats are pandering to progressives. They're losing politically. They're going to lose their most valuable members, both politically and substantively, if they don't turn things around. And if that happens, they're only going to be more controlled by the more extreme or you know, dogmatic folks within the party going forward. On the Republican side, it's almost counterintuitive, but the bigger a win it is for McCarthy and the Republicans, the better. I mean, obviously, a bigger win is better, but McCarthy could have a very, very tough situation if he only wins 10 to 15 seats and the majority for McCarthy is about the same as Pelosi's majority is for the Democrats right now. In that scenario, you'd have the Republican extremists, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gaetzes of the world literally having control of the Republican agenda in the House if Republicans do take back the majority if they get 20-plus seats, if it's a healthier majority, that means you're going to have a lot more pragmatic Republican voices in bluer districts, and you would have a lot more wiggle room for the Republican leadership going forward to sideline their own crazies and actually have a governing agenda, actually trying to have an alternative agenda that kind of glue the caucus together aside from some of the fringe elements. So the majority is important. I agree with the consensus. It's very likely that Republicans get the five or six seats needed to take back the majority, but The margin is really important for Republicans, not just because it suggests how big of a political wave it's going to be, but just for the governing success and the brand of the Republican Party as well, just going forward in the future. And how about the Senate? Yeah, the Senate is a lot more volatile because... First of all, Senate races are much more about personalities, even though we are more partisan and nationalized in terms of the Senate landscape. But you have a lot of candidates in some big swing states that are less electable than others, and they're battling in Republican primaries. The overall environment is very good. I think it's fair to say that Republicans probably have better than 50-50 odds to get that one seat necessary to win back the majority. But as Mitch McConnell himself acknowledged a few weeks ago, he's worried about some of these candidates in these big Senate races. Herschel Walker in Georgia. You've got this Ohio Senate field that's looking pretty underwhelming, even though that is a pretty red state these days. I think things are getting a little better for Republicans in Pennsylvania, but it's still a very wide open field between a celebrity doctor, Dr. Oz, and a hedge fund co-manager in David McCormick. So Republicans really need to have candidates in the Glenn Youngkin mold, or at least those that don't really pander to the worst extremes of the party to be successful in these big races. I think the environment and the candidates are looking better than they did a few months ago. And given the environment as favorable as it looks right now for Republicans, you got to say that their odds are better than 50-50 to take back the Senate. But there's a lot more volatility. It depends on a lot of these primaries coming up.
1: Well, it depends on the primaries. But, you know, we would have been having this exact same conversation about a divided, uh, what do they call it in France, cohabitation with a White House in the hands of the Democrats and the Senate in the hands of the Republicans, had Donald Trump not screwed up Georgia so very badly. Can Donald Trump screw up the Republican retaking of the Senate or even the House in the next 10 months?
2: The Senate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the one state I didn't mention is Arizona, where he just held his rally this past weekend with the greatest hits, the worst hits, the great whatever you want to call
1: introduced it. Introduced by that pillow guy.
2: Yeah, all the crazy, I mean, Arizona, you know, the Republican Party in Arizona is, is more than any other state pandered to the fringe elements in the party. And that was loud and clear over the weekend. Doug Ducey is seriously thinking about jumping into that Senate race at the last minute. There's been some good reporting. I've heard from pretty senior folks, the reconsideration is real. But the one thing he's worried about is Donald Trump going after him in a Republican primary that would probably be contested if he jumped in. So, I mean, that's kind of as close to a must-win seat as you can get for Republicans. It's a Seat that should go Republican under normal circumstances, given this political environment. But if Ducey doesn't run, if he's scared off by Trump from running, and you have the field that's in place right now, I don't know. I think Democrats and Mark Kelly have a fighting chance to hold on to that seat. But you have the same question in some of these other races where Pennsylvania was also a big warning sign, where the candidate that Trump endorsed ended up dropping out amid court records and allegations of past domestic abuse. And that's improved the Republican Party's chance. Didn't stop Herschel Walker. <laughs> Herschel Walker is actually the big big picture. Georgia and Arizona, in this environment, those seats should flip. There's a big question mark about Herschel Walker. Everyone's kind of come together, the McConnell wing, the Trump wing, to support Herschel Walker. But there's still a lot of nervousness and anxiety about what kind of candidate he's going to be and whether he's going to be able to live up to the opportunity that's out there for him in Georgia. And then there's Arizona, the field, which is right now very underwhelming, and the Ducey question. If... Walker turns out to be a better candidate than some people expect. And if Ducey runs in Arizona, Republicans have an advantage to win the Senate. If not, it's wide open.
0: So the one thing we haven't asked you yet, this podcast is going to come out on Wednesday, and the president of the United States is giving his one-year anniversary of his inauguration address. And he is apparently going to talk about all the great accomplishments of the past year. Exit question for me. Shortest presidential address ever? (laughs) In all seriousness, if you're in the White House, one, why would you do this speech when the entire country seems to think that you're failing on every front? And how do you also give that speech to hearkening back to your inaugural address when you just violated every principle of that inaugural address in Georgia?
2: Yeah. I mean, he doesn't do — I mean, he is presumably going to take questions from the press. He doesn't do that very often. He's been one of the more stingy presidents in terms of granting interviews with the media. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing. I think it's going to be a very, very, very interesting moment. It's a moment where he needs to show that he's kind of at the wheel and in charge of this ship of state. Not a lot to brag about, and he's in the middle of a fight right now with the mod. I mean, that that vote could take place on Wednesday, the Senate vote, where uh, you will have members of his own party voting against making uh, rule changes to the filibuster. So it is weird timing. They're trying to mark the first year in office, and they're trying to spin things as best as they can. I'll be interested to see if he offers a concession to bipartisanship, if he maybe talks about supporting or being open to this bipartisan proposal about making changes to this Electoral Count Act, which actually tackles some of the bigger problems that we actually face with voting as opposed to some of the Democratic bills that have been championed. So I'll be interested to see if he offers a fig leaf to Republicans who are working on that legislation with other Democrats because I think that is a pathway to actually get something done on an issue he claims to care a lot about. But look, you're right, Mark. I mean, this is a bad time to really take questions and be grilled by the press. It'll be very interesting to see what message he's going to bring to the table, because it is a tough time. And you can't just say it's the Republicans blocking his agenda. That's what they wanted with this vote. But it's pretty clear that it's not just Republicans. It's moderate members of his own party.
1: Oh, my God. Well, lots of fine advice for Joe Biden, none of which I suspect he will take, having, as you rightly detailed, received lots and lots and lots of good advice over the last year and ignored 99.9% of it. So, Josh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about this. Thank you for the great work you're doing. And uh, yay, come back to the podcast soon.
2: We'll love to. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Danielle. Thank you.
1: So, okay, we've talked about this. We know what's happening in the country. We know what Joe Biden thinks is happening in the country. How does this resolve itself to serve the best interests of the American people? We
0: get rid of the Democrat majority in the House, and then we get rid of the Democrat majority in the Senate, and then we take back the presidency. That's how it resolves itself. I mean, well, honestly, I don't know that he's capable of course correcting.
1: No, I mean, Josh basically said that. He said there's you know, a lot of time for
0: We've that. talked about this before, how it's really important for our country to have a sane opposition party, right? So if Joe Manchin was the Democratic president of the United States, I'd be perfectly comfortable.
1: I thought I was going to be perfectly comfortable with Joe Biden, normal Joe Biden.
0: There was a poll that came out that basically said that a majority of Americans think that Joe Biden is worse than they expected. And I think the rest of them probably said, no, we expected him to be this bad. (laughs) <laughs> right, you know? I didn't. It's, it's, either, it's either as bad as bad or worse than you expected. I didn't expect him to be this bad. No, no, no. I, at I all. had I had no idea that the you know, I, I wrote a column on an inauguration day saying Joe Biden is my president hmm. and that I didn't vote he for him. He still is. He is. I'm yeah, it's sadder every day. But I mean, I wanted him to succeed. I remember when we had our last cabinet meeting in the White House when Bush was elected and Obama was coming in, and President Bush gave us a diktat. He said We are going to do everything in our power to help them succeed because if the president succeeds, the country succeeds, and we want him to succeed. And so that's the approach I took when Biden started. I'll give him a fresh start. He promised to unite the country, he promised to be moderate, he promised to bring Republicans and Democrats together. He promised to put it, you know, we're on this is coming out on the one year anniversary of his inaugural address where he said, I will put my whole soul into uniting the country. He's done the opposite. No, he's been, he's he's done done the op- he has gone left in ways. He has unleashed crises like I couldn't imagine. And he has divided us more. I mean, I couldn't imagine that there would be a president who could divide us even more than Trump
1: did. And that's what's happened. Well, maybe not more, but certainly rivaling. But yes, I know. But and and, and by the way, but at the same time that he is this dreadful, we've got Trump out there sort of bringing on the complete crazy Ooh, how many FBI agents were there out there on January 6th? Yes, he said that at the Arizona rally he held, the one that even his kids didn't attend. What does this mean for American politics that the two people who are the titular leaders of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are senile, insane, or a little bit of both?
0: You know what? I'm not going to focus on Trump until it becomes necessary to focus on Trump well, again. I mean, cuz he like look, as far as yeah. I'm concerned, he's the former president of the United States. There are lots of alternatives that could win and that are sane. We've got the Glenn Youngkins of the world. We've got a great bench on the Republican side if we could pick one of those people to to run. And Joe Biden is the president right now, so let's focus on Joe Biden because he's, clear, okay. he's the clear and present danger. So, so, what,
2: so
1: what does this mean? Does it mean solutions to problems? One of the things that was great about the Clinton administration was that Bill Clinton, after two years, he had a Republican Congress. So complete debacle for the Democrats two years in, not a big surprise.
0: But then he and, tacked to
1: the center. And then he tacked to the center. He worked with the Republicans. He worked Welfare well. Reform we did great things together. And gee, you know, when the Republicans take back the House and maybe the Senate at the end of 2022, I don't see that being the prospect for 2023. To you?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, if you think about this, one of the things that Josh said that was very interesting is that The Georgia election really changed things because up until then, it looked like Joe Biden was going to be elected with a Republican Senate to keep him in check, and then he would have had to compromise from the very beginning, right? And because he didn't, then they had this narrow 50-50 with Kamala Harris breaking the tie majority in the Senate. They said, hey, you could be a transformational president. You can be FDR. You can be LBJ and do all this transformational stuff. And he just bought into it and went. If the Republicans take back the House, and that means there is no legislation going through that uh, AOC and that crowd want to get passed and Bernie Sanders want to get passed, does he finally become the Joe Biden he promised us he would be and try to work with the Republicans and try to moderate and try and find bipartisanship? Because that's the only path he has to course correct. You can always course correct. If he wants to win re-election in 2024, he's got to be able to say, I delivered on that inaugural address. He's got to remember he's president. But yes, okay. Well, there's that too. But if he can't, if three years from now, he wasn't able to deliver on any of those promises and he can't come up with a litany of bipartisan accomplishments other than the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which he was forced basically to do, then he's going to lose.
1: And the only question is to whom. I think the biggest obstacle to him engaging in a course correction is going to be the fact that he has people around him who are so far to the left of him. Joe Biden is not a guy who's looking for his next job. Maybe a real liked, but that's it. But he is surrounded by people in their 30s and their 40s who are thinking ahead, and they think the future of the American Democratic Party is where the squad is, not where Manchin is. I think they're wrong, but that's I think going to be the biggest obstacle to a course correction. Anyway, if you. Have have a course correction for us. Let us know. (laughs) Don't hesitate. Email. Share the podcast. Review us. Subscribe. Take a look at our new Substack that we put out each week summarizing and with highlights just in case you don't have the time for 45 pure minutes of Danny, Mark, and their guest. And take good care.
0: Those who can't see, Danny did a course correction on her hair. So call and email her and ask her what color it is this week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, Mark. (laughs)